welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is William Hartung, Senior Research Fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Bill, thanks for coming back on the show. It's good to talk with you again. Oh, yeah. Great to be back. I, I love this podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to be talking about a number of issues with respect to defense budgets, military spending, and the like. First, I want to ask you about a recent report you published with the Quincy Institute on a troubling trend of hordes of retired military generals and admirals going to work as lobbyists and board members and consultants for the biggest, fattest set of welfare queens in America, the arms industry. Uh, This is an old and well-known problem, I think. It's one of those many norms in DC to which we apply the metaphorical label revolving door. Uh, And I can recall excellent reporting on this particular problem going back uh, at least to 2010, and it seems to be getting worse. You cite a recent uh, study published by the Project on Government Oversight, finding that between 2014 and 2019, over 1,700 senior government and military officials went to work for top weapons contractors. Can you just talk about this problem in general? How does this revolving door work, and what did you find in your recent paper? Well, you know, you're, you're right. It goes way back. In fact, when I was doing my book on Lockheed Martin, I found a quote from William Proxmire from the 70s uh, talking about this problem. And, and he focused particularly on not just the use of influence with their former colleagues when they go to work in industry, but also that it may affect the judgment of senior officials knowing that they want to go cash in with these folks. They don't uh, regulate them as rigorously because they don't want to you know, burn bridges. Um, but, I, you know, I, I did this uh, partly because the of the flood of um, revolving door hires that we've seen in recent years. I focused on generals and admirals because I thought it would be a little more digestible by people uh, than the bigger numbers. And um, I was inspired by a a thing that Brian Bender did way back when he was with the Boston Globe, where he found at that time 34 of 39 uh, top generals and admirals had gone to industry. I, I think the difference now is they're not just going to the big companies like the head of the Joint Chiefs going on Lockheed Martin's board, uh, but they're going with uh, defense startups. They're going into firms that are investing in the industry, uh, as well as the traditional you know, jobs with the, with the big five or, or with uh, lobbying firms. So it's a little more diversified and, and a little more difficult to track. And also, a lot of these functions don't fall under the traditional revolving door regulations about um, either disclosure uh, or cooling off periods about dealing with certain issues. So it, it's, um, yeah, it's ripe to be revisited, I think, you know, from a legislative regulatory point of view. Yeah. And we'll get to some of those reform ideas. You write that the revolving door is a problem because it creates the appearance and in some cases the reality of conflicts of interest. The influence of top military officials over policy and budget issues can tilt the scales towards a more militarized foreign policy. Just explain how that works a bit and maybe give some example. Yeah. Well, I think it's a little bit of chicken and egg problem. I mean, there's obviously kind of ideology and beliefs and kind of this notion that the U.S. should, uh, you know, dominate the world militarily that that drives some of this. But some of those same individuals are also cashing in on it. So I feel like there's kind of a synergy between ideology and, and, and money. Um, and, you know, there's there's some recent cases like uh, James Cartwright when he was in government. Um, 
advocated for this troubled um, surveillance balloon that um, in one um, unfortunate example came loose from its moorings and uh, crashed in Amish country of Pennsylvania. There was, uh, you know, Joseph Dunford, uh, former head of JCS, um, went to bat for the Marine version of the F-35 and then went to Lockheed Martin, the producer. Um, you know, the general who was overlooking the literal combat ship, which Navy's trying to divest of, um, he was running the program and then came out and, and became, uh, you know, the key point person for Lockheed Martin and trying to keep Congress from, uh, you know, partially canceling it. Um, you know, James Mattis, a, a little bit to the side, but relevant, uh, pushed for the Theranos blood testing kits um, at the time when they weren't really proven and um, then went on the board of that company uh, when he left. So uh, there's a lot of cases and, you know, probably the most egregious, uh, but probably not the only example was um, uh, Darlene Druyan, who was a procurement official uh, and uh, pushed for a a, a Boeing a refueling tanker, uh, and was same time was negotiating for a job with them, and had gotten some of her relatives hired by them, and um, she actually did a, a bit of prison time. But but I think it was kind of like the exception that proves the rule because this is happening all the time, and, and it's not disclosed, it's not visible. Um, but uh, I have no doubt that her case was not an exception. It was just you know she got caught. Uh, John McCain. Uh, subpoenaed a bunch of emails that sort of showed exactly, you know, how it was done. What are the current rules on this? And and then what rules do you think need to be added? Well, they can vary um, by, you know, the position that the person has. But, you know, essentially there's sort of a cooling off period for dealing with your former uh, agency. But, but in some cases, it's just on issues that you worked on um, when you were in the Pentagon. So, you know, if you go to the board of Lockheed Martin, you, you're kind of have free reign to, to just do what you'd like. Or if you go to a, a company like West uh, Sec Advisors that people like Michelle Florida and Tony Blinken and others worked with, you know, they define what they do as strategic advice. So they are, they fall outside of the disclosure uh, regs also. Um, so I think at a minimum, you need a longer cooling off period so, so that their contexts are not as live and, and perhaps the uh, retired officials get into some other line of work. But also- sorry, by, sorry to interrupt. By cooling off period, you just mean there has to be a mandated amount of time after retirement that they can uh, be allowed to jump into these ventures. Yes, exactly. Uh, and then uh, you know, a, a more comprehensive definition of uh, what working for the industry means. So if you're an advisor, if you're a board member, uh, these would be covered, um, which they are not now. Um, and then I think more information uh, about not only where the people are going, but a little bit about what they're actually up to, which is done, uh, for example, for foreign lobbies, but it's not done for lobbies for the arms industry. Uh, you know, on the, on the foreign influence side, they, they have to report how many contacts they have with Congress and the media, uh, submit some of the uh, PR materials that they've used. It, it gives you a better sense of what's going on because as it is, some you know congressional staffers and members of Congress, they'll acknowledge that this goes on, but they don't like to talk about it. Not even people who push back. Uh, and you know, one 
uh, staffer for uh, a, a leader in the Senate said that um, about 20% of his time was was chewed up with just fending off lobbyists from the uh, arms sector. You know, so it's quite extensive. You know, the industry has 800 lobbyists, uh, more than there are members of Congress, and, and most of them have come through the revolving door from the Pentagon or the National Security Council or Congress. Um, and they've got the contacts, they'll, they'll lobby their former bosses and so forth. So they, they get the kind of access that, you know, people who are for reform but don't have that, those connections w- would never get, you know. I want to take a step back for a second from the specific question of revolving doors and, and just ask you about the influence of the military industrial complex in general over policy. You've recently written that, quote, weapons firms are not merely subject to U.S. laws, but actively seek to shape them including exerting considerable effort to block legislative efforts to limit arms sales. Can you talk about that a bit more? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, like in an area like arms sales, for example, if if a company like Lockheed Martin or Raytheon sells a bomb that's used to, you know, bomb a civilian neighborhood or a school bus or, you know, a clear uh, violation of the laws of war, uh, their argument is, well, we're just doing what the government tells us to do. We're just following policy. Uh, but they don't sort of acknowledge that they're working overtime to shape what those policies are, uh, to make it harder to limit uh, arms sales to human rights abusers and, and um, to push arms out the door more quickly with less vetting on the government side, um, to have less transparency about where the weapons are going. And certain kinds of sales, uh, they won't even tell you who the company is or exactly what they're selling. Uh, so so there's there's a lack of ability to hold these firms accountable uh, and they're responsible for kind of making that uh, harder and harder to do. Um, and you see it, you know, across the board. I mean, you know, um, they push uh, for the F-35. They've got, you know, Lockheed Martin has a map of the jobs in every state. Um, you know, they have a F-35 caucus made up of members who have pieces of the plane uh, built in their districts. Um, you know, they, um, uh, you know, arms officials sit on official bodies, like the, uh, there was a, a congressional body that reviewed the uh, 2018 National Defense Strategy and said, oh goodness, we're not spending enough and we're not being hard enough on the, the China threat and we need to spend three to 5% above inflation every year in perpetuity to deal with this. Um, and uh, President Government Oversight did a little digging and well over half of those people in that commission were on the boards of weapons contractors or were consultants to them or were think tanks that got floods of contractor money. So uh, they, they weren't, you know, sort of objective observers. They, they were uh, part and parcel of, um, you know, they and their institutions would benefit from these increases. And and that report, although normally these things are kind of just thrown on the shelf, was, you know, waved like a, a bloody flag by um, proponents of increases, including James Inhofe, who used to run armed services, would, at hearings, he would hold the thing up and say to the witness, well, don't you agree with this, sir? Um, you know, so, um, you know, they, they have influence that way. And of course, you know, we mentioned the lobbyists and there's campaign contributions. And so I, they have sort of this um, array of tools that they can use. Um and I think, although a lot of people talk about the uh, 
campaign money, I think relative to the other tools, that may be the the least influential uh, compared to the the jobs and the revolving door and, and those elements, as well as uh, you know having kind of inside uh, influence over how policy is described or even developed. You know, Eisenhower famously warned us about the military-industrial complex. Everybody knows this historic farewell address, you know, and where he warned about the acquisition of unwarranted influence and the potential for misplaced power to pervert our, our democratic system. But, and you kind of referenced this earlier, it's not just that everybody knows about this famous warning. It's also true, although it, it's a bit beneath the surface, that basically nobody denies that Eisenhower's worst fear has come true. You know, it's a military industrial complex. It's a very well-known phrase in the political lexicon, in our culture. It's not even really controversial. But when you point to it, you know, this vast state-subsidized industry of war profiteers uh, amassing ever larger piles of taxpayer money and distorting our public institutions, and people just kind of shrug at the mundanity of it. You know, it's like boring. Uh, it's like uh, getting up on a soapbox and screaming about how grass is green or the sky is blue. You know, people are like, so what? Uh, I don't really have a question here, I guess. Have you noticed this weird thing that we, we tend to acknowledge this nightmare, but simultaneously kind of pretend it isn't happening? Yeah, I think part of it is um, people don't trust government broadly. Uh, I think it's it's rigged in many ways. So is this any different? Um they don't think that we can do anything about it, so why pay attention to the fine green details? Um, and some people say, well, you know, we need to defend ourselves. Sure, there's going to be some waste, but that's just the price we pay, you know. Um, and so I think there, there's got to be some feeling, you know, first of all, that change is possible, that you, reforms that would limit this influence. And also think a little bit about that this is a little different from some other industries. Uh, you know, Wall Street getting a tax break costs us in many ways, but uh, these are life and death issues. Uh, you know, people's lives are at stake in, in defense policy. And so if you have this tilt in favor of, um, you know, money, interest, and influence, uh, that's immensely dangerous. Um, and, you know, we've seen some new manifestations of it. Uh, there's some influential venture capital firms that are throwing money at startups that work on things like artificial intelligence and hypersonic weapons and so forth. And they're much more aggressive about pushing their agenda. Uh, they're much less guarded. You know, they'll, t they'll speak very, um, you know, candidly about what they view as the China threat and do scaremongering about it. And uh, they've tried to kind of you know, muzzle critics in Silicon Valley who don't want them to be working on these kinds of projects or raise questions. Um, so there's kind of this new element that, that wasn't quite there when Eisenhower spoke about it. Some of these firms think, oh, we're going to take out Lockheed Martin. We're going to be the leaders of the future. You know, we're going to disrupt the weapons industry. And also they have a general ideology that, um, you know, like innovation is our savior. You know, it's technology is going to do it. And almost to the exclusion of things like diplomacy, understanding the context, other things that would be part of a, a more um, effective policy. So the Defense Department gets the most funding uh, of any federal agency, right? Um, something like 
$800 billion a year conservatively right now, and yet it can't pass an audit. The Pentagon recently failed its sixth consecutive audit, and it's only ever had six. Uh, explain this to me. Uh, what does it mean that DOD can't pass an audit, and what can't they account for? Yeah. I mean, part of it is because they're so massive and because their systems don't talk to each other and so forth. But they've had years to resolve this. I mean, actually, there was a bill in 1990 that required federal agencies to be auditable, and, and they, they haven't met that. Um, and I don't think it's, they don't, they haven't made it a priority necessarily. But, you know, if you don't know kind of what you're spending where, um, you know, you don't know, sometimes they don't know what kind of equipment they have in warehouses, they buy things twice. Um, there have been scandals where people create, you know, fake companies and collect uh, contracts for years without being caught. You know, if you can't track the money, it's kind of an invitation to, a waste, fraud, and abuse. Um, you know, the flip side is, you know, if they counted every penny and they still had an interventionist, you know, misguided policy, we'd save some money, but we wouldn't change the uh, fundamental security question. So it's, I think it's important, but it's not sort of the only issue. But I think it does resonate with the public a bit. You know, well, you know, I don't get to do that. I have to balance my checkbook and I'm held accountable for my debts and so forth. And uh, the Pentagon gets somewhat of a free ride on all that. Despite the excessive overspending on national security, despite uh, deeply embedded conflicts of interest and, and apparent corruption uh, involved, and despite the fact that DOD cannot achieve the kind of bare minimum of uh, public accountability by passing an audit, we're, we're at a point politically where people are advocating continuing to increase military spending. And uh, China is easily the most common justification for it. But you published another recent paper for Brown University's Costs of War Project, in which you try to put the U.S. military spending in perspective relative to China. You make a couple of crucial points that I want you to talk about. Uh, the first thing you tackle is the simple fact that the U.S. still outspends China on the military by a wide margin. Please explain that. Yeah, well, there's been a push by... Uh, China Hawks and the Heritage Foundation and others to say, you know, uh, you know, the most often used measure of of uh, comparing global military spending is Stockholm Peace Research Institute, which puts U.S. spending about three times what China spends uh, on its military each year. Um, and they've said, well, but China doesn't report everything uh, that's military related in their official budget. Uh, but CIPRI accounts for that, so that doesn't really hold water. And then the other issue is, well, you know, uh, their currency goes further. They can, they can get more um, because of their, you know, cost of some of their inputs are cheaper and so forth. Uh, but even if you take the most extreme case or, you know, accept the most uh, extreme version of that argument, uh, the U.S. still spends about twice what China does. So at least on that measure, um, there's not a reason to quote unquote try to catch up with China, we're outspending them. I think the issue is more: what are we spending on? What's our strategy? Where are the points of tension? You know, that spending alone doesn't cover it, but but this notion that they're spending comparable or going to outpace us in spending doesn't really hold up uh, to the evidence. Yeah, this this tendency in the policy discourse to kind of equate. Um, just diving in and spending more money as somehow addressing 
a military imbalance or something. You know, it's it's a tendency that seems more like an emotional thing rather than a rational thing, where people think, you know, we have to re- react to Chinese increased military spending to hurry up ourselves and start spending more, and that'll somehow solve the problem. Uh, and at certain points, it, it can seem that the discussion is it turns into a, a, a competition over top line budget figures rather than a geopolitical competition, you know. And what we need to spend on or spend less on is is not so much a part of the conversation. It's just let's get this overall number higher, and then we can feel safer. Yeah, it's kind of a symbol, and sometimes they even say, "Well, gee, you know, if we, you know, stay even this year or cut by two percent, we're sending a message to our adversaries." Yeah, I don't think Putin is sitting there with a calculator saying, "Well, you know, if they spend two percent less, uh, I'm going to invade Ukraine." I mean, it's just. It's kind of this mythic uh, concept that that's used to uh, you know keep the budget high, but but it really should be about what what's our strategy and, and what will keep us safe as opposed to some arbitrary dollar figure. And when it comes to procuring military equipment and weapon systems, what are the things that people are tending to point to that that they say we need to confront China? Well. You know, it used to be about kind of traditional, uh, you know, military capabilities, and and the U.S. is is in the lead on on most of those. Um, more tonnage, more powerful navy, many more nuclear weapons, many more advanced combat aircraft, much more ability to project power. That China doesn't really have that, with you know, beyond its own region. Um, but now the big focus is on uh, emerging tech. Um, you know, uh, Kathleen Hicks, uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense, gave a speech in August to the National Defense Industrial Association, uh, introducing what they called the Replicator Initiative. And she talked about things like building swarms of drones that could build, hit thousands of targets in 24 hours and kind of uh, outdoing China with kind of these, um, you know, cheap, effective, uh, high-tech systems that could be... um, replicated quickly if they were lost in battle. And um, it, it was all kind of a little bit of a fantasy. You know, they they, they want to like get this ability within a couple of years. I mean, they the F-35 took 20 years to develop. So, you know, no question they should try to speed up the process, but they're not going to turn on a dime. Um, and also, there's no guarantee that these uh, systems are going to work as advertised or improve the situation. I mean, there's been a long history of, you know, saying, well, we've got the miracle technology that's that's going to win us wars. You know, they had the electronic battlefield in Vietnam. They had the Revolution of Military Affairs and the Rumsfeld area and beyond. But um, that didn't result in the U.S. winning the Vietnam War or in Afghanistan or in Iraq because uh, it, it's more than about targeting. I mean, there's a whole social, political, morale. There's, there's a whole series of factors that affect effectiveness in war. So, to assume that if we have AI-driven weapons and affordable drones, and um, what does that mean? I mean, are we going to attack targets inside China, which is a nuclear armed power? Uh, are these things going to function properly? I mean, some are, analysts are concerned that um, you know, if you trust your security algorithms and they fail, uh, you could end up slaughtering people unnecessarily, or uh, you know, provoking nuclear escalation, or so. You know, this notion that, well, we got to catch up with China, 
on these issues uh, on these technologies kind of puts aside whether they're useful or what dangers they pose. And, and as to whether China's spending more, it's kind of a black box. I mean, the U.S., a lot of our programs are classified in this stuff. Um, there's not, you know, some people in, in the U.S. establishment say, oh, we're five to seven years behind China, but they've never provided the evidence for that. So, uh, but anyway, this this is where the conversation is now. It's kind of a, you know, a, a high-tech arms race, but somehow these are going to be the first high-tech weapons in history that are cheaper, can be produced quicker, are more effective. So it's they're, they're selling a bit of a pipe dream, um, but it, it will be uh, a good way to bring money in for sure. For sure. I guess that's where a lot of the uncertainty lies with respect to the future of US-China relations, because on the more conventional military domain, you know, you argue uh, what could trigger an aneurysm among many analysts in DC, but seems to me to be pretty straightforward, which is that China doesn't pose a direct military threat to the United States, contrary to a lot of uh, haranguing uh, in, in our politics. Relative to other rising powers throughout history, China's military buildup and record on the use of force are relatively restrained. Um, a lot of people point to their strategy as inherently defensive, unlike ours, which is very offensive. Um, you know, I wonder uh, if you can kind of make that case to us, because there's a lot of people who are persuaded that China does indeed present a military threat to us and that we need to do something about it. So just talk about how we should, not only whether or not there's a military threat, but um, how we should address China's rise in terms of our strategy and military spending. Yeah. Well, I think you know, the real challenge from China is is more uh, political and economic than military. They don't have the ability to project force uh, in any way that they could, you know, affect the United States other than nuclear weapons, uh, on which we um, our stockpiles about ten times what theirs is. And even if they build up as they seem to be doing, uh, you know, deterrence will hold. So their their ability to, you know, attack the U.S. really doesn't exist. And you know, they haven't fought a war in 40 years. Um, they are throwing their weight around regionally. Um, but, you know, it seems to boil down ultimately uh, from the point of view of Hawks to Taiwan uh, and that China's going to seize Taiwan and we have to stop that. And some of them would even, you know, put U.S. troops on the ground to do that, which is, it was kind of a crazy idea. Um, but they never talk about the fact that there, there's other means to to head this off. Um, you know, the one China policy where China basically accepts the idea that it, it would, would not use force to unify with Taiwan. Um, and the U.S. will not recognize Taiwan, will not have robust political relations. That That's broken down in recent years because of statements by the administration and visits by U.S. officials. And, um, you know, I think working on that front to kind of restore some understanding would, would be more useful than trying to spin out scenarios about war over Taiwan, which uh, would be a disaster for all parties concerned. I mean, even if it didn't rise to the nuclear level, there'd undoubtedly be tens and tens of thousands of casualties. Taiwan itself, which would be the battleground, would be devastated. There'd be huge economic repercussions. The U.S. role in the world would be weakened. Um so there's a lot of incentive to um, head that off. And the Biden administration at least 
recently is, is talking to China and uh, wants to talk about things like nuclear weapons and artificial intelligence-driven weapons and um, you know how far that'll get is not entirely clear. But yeah, you know, they're in an environment where you've got hawks in Congress who still want to go full speed ahead with the militarized policy and, and saber rattling and so forth. Um, and also uh, within the military, uh, people, you know, saying, oh yeah, we're going to fight them in 2025. And, you know, these people are in the chain of command. They, they shouldn't be talking out of school about this. And none of them have been disciplined and said, you know, hey, this is not our policy. You shouldn't be mouthing off about it. So, you know, even if Biden wants some more, uh, you know, restrained diplomatic policy, uh, he, he's got an environment to deal with uh, that, that makes it hard to do that. Yeah, the politics on China seem to be very um, fraught. Uh, but your answer there is really revealing, right? Because there's a habit in D.C. where you feel uncertain or you feel threatened. Well, just throw a bunch of money at super expensive and often ineffective uh, weapon systems. And it'll kind of make us feel better, but it won't address the problem. And what you're saying is, Given the horror that a confrontation with China would actually uh, present, uh, we need to do everything we can to head that off with diplomacy. And it's quite possible, you know, uh, the United States has been making choices to undermine the one China policy, but it's worked up till now. And uh, this habit, this knee jerk reliance on conventional military power. As, as the way to head off a fight, as opposed to building a strategy that allows you to uh, avoid the costly consequences of war. That seems to be the way to, to do it, but uh, the habit in Washington is very much uh, not in line with that diplomacy, and the politics don't seem to support it. So then my question is, where does it even come from? Yeah, it, it's, it's puzzling in a way, because if you look at this century, um, you know, the interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, were in many ways disastrous, uh, and so the, the idea that you know force is going to like establish you in this dominant position in the world w was not borne out in those cases. Um, and to take on a you know a rival power like China as opposed to the Taliban or ISIS or you know a group that's that is not comparable in terms of armaments and, and numbers and so forth, but has various kind of political and situational advantages. Um, you know, that's a whole other challenge. And the idea that you can just assume that the policy should be to be able to win a war over Taiwan uh, that's in China's front yard, that they're a nuclear armed power, that they have the capacity certainly to spend more if we want to start an arms race. Uh, you know, they've been relatively restrained for years. They only had a couple hundred uh, nuclear weapons that could reach the United States when we had thousands. Uh, now they're building up in part because they think if the U.S. puts in missile defense systems and builds a new generation of nuclear weapons, their deterrent might be threatened. So there's, there's this action-reaction uh, thing going on. So, yeah, I think there's no – I think it, part of it's it's kind of like a bad habit. It's almost like an addiction to force. And I think it – you know, it, it, people feel it resonates better politically. It shows that you're, you're strong. And then, of course, you've got these reinforcing things of, of the uh, – the money to be had and the careers to be built. And um, I, I think it's hard to uh, turn that around, even in the face of evidence that it, it hasn't been effective. 
for a long, long time. I think you put it very, very succinctly uh, in the the piece off for the Cost of War Project. Quote, the economic, diplomatic, and human rights challenges posed by China will not be solved by an arms race. That's pretty important because we're talking about inputs here of mil conventional military power and then outputs of these political outcomes. And I just don't know how you get from one to the other. You know, so the U.S., is complaining about China's repression of its own population, particularly the Uyghurs. Well, you're not going to deter them from that activity by building more bombs. Um, you know, uh, they're not going to give greater freedom to Hong Kong uh, because of our threats and bullying and uh, increasing military budget. Um, they're not going to start to respect Taiwan's sovereignty or roll back their uh, nuclear ambitions just because we threaten them to. Um, no, if anything, it gives them a tool, uh, you know, a political tool to say, well, there's there's bigger problems here, which is that this country's, you know, threatening our existence and and kind of sweep their internal repression and and um, problems under the rug in a way, um, kind of just you know shift people's attention. So, um, but I think you know the hawks seem to have this idea that if if the Chinese leadership thinks we can beat them in a conflict, that they'll just you know, do anything the U.S. wants. All will change. And, and there's no, um, you know, history of that working against any great power. Uh, and if anything, they may crack down harder uh, if they're under pressure militarily. So, uh, you know, that raises the question of what what does one do about problems like human rights in China? And I, I think there has to be a little bit of humility that our leverage is somewhat limited. Uh, that, you know, people can speak out. They can be kind of you know, international pressure of various sorts. But but the idea that more aircraft carriers, more bombs, more nuclear weapons is somehow going to have any kind of influence over solving those real issues is, um, you know, I, I think absurd. So it, it's it's kind of like there's this picture is being built. Essentially, it's, it's kind of like a cartoonish approach. You know, it's good and evil. And the Chinese leadership is evil in every respect. They're repressive. They're aggressive. You know, they're trying to influence our politics. Um, you know, some of the hawks even don't want, you know, academic exchanges with China. I mean, it's really gotten out of hand. Uh, so uh, that's got to be rolled back if we're going to have, a, you know, an effective policy with a power that is a rising power that is have to be dealt with. Uh, but uh, dealing with it primarily through a military lens uh, could be disastrous and, and it, at least at a minimum, is, is certainly counterproductive. We're veering way off from military budgets here, but you know, you, you remind me to point out that these issues that uh, we like to poke China on that happen to be about values, you know, political values, democracy or human rights, um, sovereignty, whatever, these are very selectively chosen and enforced by the United States, right? So it seems to me that if you are on the one hand helping Saudi Arabia slaughter uh, Yemenis and helping Israel bomb the smithereens out of Gaza and supporting lots of tyrannical regimes as they repress their population, it seems like a low-cost way to pacify relations with China to stop pretending like we genuinely care about the substance of their human rights abuse. Yeah, I think it's it's too often weaponized. You know, 
human rights in Iran are an issue for the U.S. administration's human rights in China. Uh, but the places where the U.S. actually has leverage or is even enabling the abuses, uh, suddenly it's complex. Uh, you know, Saudi Arabia recently was uh, slaughtering migrants at its border, and, and some of the border guards had been trained by the United States. And the administration's response was, well, let's do an investigation. You know, were the specific individuals that did this trained by the U.S. or by another country? As opposed to saying, uh, this is an abusive regime doing an outrageous thing. We should not be supporting them. Um, but they don't split hairs uh, when they talk about human rights uh, you know, abuses by adversaries. So until there's some kind of uh, equal concern, it, it you know, it, it makes the U.S. look a bit foolish to, to, to be so selective about where and when it raises uh, human rights issues. And even in the case of China, you know, some of the hawks are just using the Uyghur issue to club China with it. They may or may not actually care about the, uh, the fate uh, of those people and, and the awful things that they're undergoing. You know, you do a, a sort of a thankless job in Washington. You know, you, you, you seem less exasperated than I am at, at the absurdity of our military spending and so on. Um, but you've been doing it for a lot longer, so that makes sense. But uh, any final thoughts before we sign off about the U.S. military budget, how we approach military spending, what you're looking forward to in the coming month? Yeah, well, uh, part of the... The outrage question is just my personality. You know, I'm, I'm outraged on the inside, but I'm not yelling it from the rooftops. Uh, but uh, I do think we have to confront this issue. There's got to be a reckoning because not only is it making us less safe, uh, our country has so many internal issues. Uh, I mean, our democracy itself is is in a teetering position. Um, there's too many people that just can't, you know, make ends meet, um, and so. You know, you know, re reducing the Pentagon budget is not the be-all and end-all. You, you also need uh, a more rational defense strategy. You need some kind of agenda of how you're going to um, rebuild and revitalize the country. So, um, you know, I wouldn't just say, hey, you know, let's cut X amount from the Pentagon and spend it elsewhere and all will be well. But but certainly if if the money and, and, and also the attention of our leaders is primarily on military spending and development of weapons and technologies that, you know, allegedly will solve these complex problems, um, it affects everything. Um, I mean, you know, part of Eisenhower's thought was that, was that um, you know, he, he was a fiscal conservative. And so, but so from his point of view, he said, well, you know, we can't afford to build a garrison state because it's, it's going to undermine our, us from within. Um, and I think that's still a relevant question is, Where's our attention? What, what kind of world do we want to build? What kind of country do we want to live in? And if you're throwing all that um, energy and money at a kind of a simplified view of the world and, and blaming your problems on an adversary that where you're exaggerating their influence and power, um, you're really digging yourself into a huge hole. Um, and so the question is, how do you communicate that? And if people, you know, accept that argument, how do you get them to feel like they can have influence? Because I think a lot of people, they're not paying attention because they don't think they're ever going to have an impact on the government. Therefore, you know, watch football, take care of your family, just, you know, it's above my pay grade or it's nothing I can do about it. It's just, 
part of the background of life. So uh, I think that's the biggest challenge, not just on national security, but on a whole range of issues, is can people feel like they're, they can be effective citizens in a functioning democracy? So somehow there's got to be a, that has to be worked on it as, as well as the kind of policy questions. And, I, you know, that's not something I really am engaged in or effective at, but there's got to be a parallel effort on that front just, just to make people feel like they can affect our futures. From your lips to God's ears, Bill Hartung, thanks so much for coming on. Yes, thank you. It was, it was great as usual. 